After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. Hello again, listener. Thanks for tuning back into Greenhouse Gaslighting. It's just me, Adi, with you today. Before we begin, I just wanted to do some quick housekeeping. If you've seen our most recent social media posts, yes, the show is still on a hiatus, but I wanted to deliver at least one episode before I left. Quite honestly, I'm really struggling to find a direction for how I want things to go with this program, and as I've mentioned before, I struggle with the entrepreneurial uh, mindset of social media, and I feel it's best for my own sanity, as well as my own creativity, to really truly log out for a bit, as I've preached before on this show. I want to be able to have regular episode releases, all with guests, panels, topics, and whatever a good show has. And I want to even stream uh, video games to the future. But I need to come to terms with the reality of the online medium and my place within it. I've said before that I started this podcast out of a need to feel heard and out of a need to cut through the muck as a lefty. But what's the point in being heard without anything real to say? So, with that being said, I wanted to initially release a special for Earth Day, and in spite of how late this will be uploaded after the fact, I think the topic of ecology and environmental policy is incredibly resonant to what drove me into politics and societal critique into the arms of the left in the first place. And just as much as I'm going to speak to you about what I think it's going to take to even have a shot at saving the planet, I also want to share my own relationship to this topic, and how my own thought has been influenced by the dominant ideology and assumptions of the world around me, and how it's a topic that I've allowed to be enveloped in my own personal blind spots. I hope, in my most vulnerable expression of my experiences, that I can make a persuasive case for why a left-wing, socialist understanding of ecology and the interconnectedness of every issue is a necessary step to really approach any kind of qualitative improvement. I also hope in doing so, I've shared something about me to the world and to you, dear listener. My earliest memories growing up as a child were of being asthmatic on a nebulizer, not really able to play or go out. I was still too young to know anything about air quality. What I did have was a voracious appetite to read. I still wish I could read with that much vigor, but as a child, I was killing the game when it came to reading. Jumpstart and Hooked on Phonics had absolutely nothing on me. I can remember very vividly, aggressively reading through the Dorling Kindersley Eyewitness collections on animals, on history or whatever, begging my mom to take me to the library as soon as she could. And there's a fond childhood memory that I was too young to recall, but has been relayed to me many times by family members um, involving uh, my grandfather's dog, a grumpy spitz breed, that I was somehow able to befriend where others had failed. So it's been a lifetime interest for me. I'd pick up books to learn about the world around me, and by the time I could go to school, I can recall being quite incensed by the reality of species extinction and climate change, and I wanted to put whatever I could into stopping that. But who'd oblige a child who really, at the end of the day, knew nothing or could do nothing? 
As long as we were recycling, as long as Carrie could beat out Bush, maybe this whole thing could sort itself out. Eventually, my family decided to move to India, and I was along for that ride. I have a lot of material from that time that I think could make for very funny content, but that's neither here nor there. Despite this being where I could trace my roots to, the culture shock was still apparent. I was still just a pudgy, ignorant American child, and I mistook the suburbs I was growing up in as a shut-in as the ideal way to run a society. I smirk at this ignorance, but it's important to realize for the vast majority of people who never get a chance to leave or choose not to leave their hovels in America, this is how the world has always been. With an assumption like that, of course you begin to develop incredibly biased assumptions on development. Ugh, I don't like that term. And at the time, I just assumed that these so-called poorer countries had done something to bring it on themselves. And with the benefit of experience and hindsight, I truly understand just how wrong and how dangerous these assumptions can be. In India, I attended a pretty weird school, and I say so because the core syllabus itself was just STEM and English. Without getting into too much detail, because, again, I have several funny stories I hope to recount in a future episode someday, I can say that I was mostly denied an education in the humanities until much, much later in my life, save for a few supplemental courses, one I'd like to credit as a major development in my initial ideological phase as a liberal called environmental management. At the time, it was possibly the closest thing we had to an interdisciplinary course focused on concepts of basic ecology, hydrology, and geology, as well as economics, public health, sociology, and public policy. If you've ever seen anything regarding sustainable development for some kind of United Nations program or a white paper from the Clinton Foundation or honestly, ugh, anything coming out of the NGO world, it was the first exposure I had to this kind of ideology where with just enough infrastructural tweaking in the third world, some heavily conditional aid and ensuring uh, a bizarre benevolent face for a very different kind of colonialism that's all it would take to lift people out of poverty and save the planet. For what it's worth, I can't say that the course in all its entirety was Western propaganda. The heavy presence of European expat kids in my class would still chime in. Uh, quite accurately, that America's consumption was heavily to blame. Uh, but it never came with any ideological consistency. Any real challenge to American consumerism or the neocolonial relations of Europe to Africa and Asia were never really challenged. While I personally do think it was good to be exposed to that kind of anti-American critique, um, <laughs> I wish it came less from folks who were uh, trying to get a jab in at me personally, and more so as a, a real reality, <laughs> and more so as a reality that needs to be reckoned with. Maybe that could have woken me up earlier. But right now, it was only the time to keep one eye half open and the other fully shut. We eventually moved back to the United States, and it was soon time to justify to my traditional family why I wouldn't take the safe bet of medicine or engineering. My harebrained scheme at the time 
was to take on environmental science, then jump to law school. My daydream was that I'd be in a courtroom someday making an impassioned West Wing-style speech to the bench as someone who could win something for the planet and have some kind of a living. This is possibly among one of the most stupid things I've ever thought. All the while, an actual attorney who had done that was being bent over backwards at the same time I had these ideas. I think it's worth digressing here with the story of Stephen Donziger. If you hadn't heard before, Stephen Donziger was an attorney who represented over 30,000 farmers and indigenous people in the Lago Agrio case in Ecuador against energy giant Chevron related to environmental damage and health effects caused by oil drilling. The Ecuadorian courts awarded the plaintiffs $9.5 billion in damages, which led Chevron to withdraw its assets from Ecuador and launch legal action against Donziger in the United States. In 2011, Chevron filed a RICO suit against Donziger in New York City as retaliation for him daring to take a stand and win. To this day, Donziger is still stuck in house arrest, and were it not for his interview with Will Menneker of Chapo Trap House, I'd still be in the dark. I'll share that interview uh, in the description and some more resources on how you can learn more about the case. Now, if you recall, a familiar refrain from Joe Biden and liberal allies in 2020 needed to contrast him against Trump for the bungled response to the pandemic was that we were going to respect and believe in science again. Now, this is a good thing, both on paper and in practice. But there's an underpinning to that assumption that goes unchecked in a way that really irks me. We can talk all day about the need for science, but it's important to at least be able to explain to what end this science is going to be applied. Are we building green energy, or are we going to build machines of war? Are we building bombs or developing fertilizer? Are we going to develop medicine for the masses, or is this only going to be for the 10 people who could ever afford an experimental treatment? STEM majors don't often engage the humanities outside of gen eds, and often just subscribe to whatever ideology is already readily available to them. If you subscribe to Matt Crispin's Cush vlog, then you've heard this idea before. Oftentimes, I hear the complaint lobbed around that engineers, for example, tend to exercise centrist or right-wing opinions. And I think Matt's descriptor of college as a kind of ideological car wash can explain observations like these in real time. The reality is, yes, my program could pump out people with Bachelor of Science degrees, but could it produce technically competent individuals with a perspective on how best to apply those skills towards any kind of vision? That's the personal issue I grapple with in response to higher education. There's the old James Baldwin quote, um, I'm going to paraphrase, that the paradox of education is that it prepares one to critique the society that educated them. But I would argue that this isn't a society that educated me in any complete way. It's a society that did, however, ensure that the picture was partial and that that picture remained partial. Students in my program actually explicitly said that they don't want to engage the political aspects of any of it. And in fairness, seeing how politically engaged people like College Democrats act would probably turn anyone off to all of it. I helped out in a couple local Democratic campaigns, but it was becoming clearer and clearer to me that as a party, the Democratic Party has no real vested interest on delivering to any of its constituency groups. 
environmentalists are just a voting block to get them an edge over the Republicans. And at the end of the day, they have no real commitment to deliver to them. Even if you recognize this, who are you going to go to? What are you going to do? Vote Republican? No. If you still have any faith in voting, you'll begrudgingly check the name of anyone who said something about vaguely uh, subscribing to climate science. It didn't matter if you saw Hillary Clinton get away with supporting fracking in 2016 or Obama's handling of the Dakota Access Pipeline in the twilight of his presidency. It was the only game in town, and you had to take it. It wasn't all steely-eyed, cold, and hopeless. For what it's worth, the childhood recluse was finally going to be able to overcome his insecurities of never having been exposed to the outdoor recreation that isn't real normality of American life. I'd never camped until I was in my 20s, and if it wasn't for a field ecology course in Costa Rica, I'd never be able to rekindle my childhood love for animals by getting into bird watching. I still have vivid memories of a scene in Caño Negro, where sitting from the bill of a boat in a river, I could see more birds than I could fathom, kingfishers diving headfirst into the river, roseate spoonbills gathered along the riverbank, the chorus of growling howler monkeys, and more birds of prey than I'd ever known existed. It's these memories I can look back to and say that my destiny wasn't fully determined by my childhood, even though at times I tend to feel like damaged goods. You don't have to be set up for success. You don't have to be set up by birth to feel a connection to things. You'll know it in the moment. When I inevitably graduated, I wasn't able to find much in terms of gainful employment. I was still campaigning as a Bernieite hashtag resistance member, but I was quickly disillusioned and walked away from a lot of that. If you've been job hunting, then this sounds familiar to you. Every entry-level job I looked at needed three to five years of experience and certifications I wish I'd heard of before I walked the stage at commencement. I really did feel like a waste of space, and I felt as though I'd never deserved any means to claim any knowledge or any passion for ecology. I really allowed this insecurity to prevent me from speaking on this area or even letting people know it's something I had a strong, lifelong connection to. If I couldn't monetize it, if I couldn't make it my 9-to-5, how could I prove that? Eventually, I was able to find a way out of that pit, and here I am with you from the comfort of my exclusive, premium podcasting chair. No, that's not it. While I may indeed have a chip on my shoulder when it comes to a lack of any professional engagement when it comes to the environmental careers, what I did gain was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to really reframe my approach to the world and question my assumptions. The academic world that separates STEM and humanities is not the real one, and I needed a way to reframe things that can answer things holistically. This marked my real foray into socialist ideology, and while I'm a real baby when it comes to knowing theory and history, I can say now that there is no approach to the environment to solve the crises we face without engaging in some degree of socialist thought. If you go online these days, you'll read that folks are concerned about ecofascism, and I feel they're correct to be. In my estimate, ecofascism comes from the same false assumptions I've mentioned earlier, 
And if I can put it simply, it comes down to wanting to have your cake and eat it. We can talk all day about racist and classist attitudes in America, but in my understanding, it's necessary to describe the ends to which these can be deployed. When it means that in the midst of a pandemic, we watch retail and restaurant employees fall prey first to the virus, it also means we get to exploit the developing world for its labor and resources as we blame them for things like emissions. When we point to environmental degradation and pollution in China and India, especially if anyone recalls the coverage of air quality in Beijing and New Delhi, but we pay no mind to water pollution committed by American factories, or how environmental racism is a perfect way to describe the industrial pollution that impacts downriver communities in Metro Detroit, we expose that we indeed favor living conditions for whole classes of people in this country. When native communities do not have their rights to water respected, we expose that the right of survival only belongs to those who colonize in this country. What we've come to value as a society at this point in history is the right of America to be the consumer at the end of the global supply chain, and that the right of Americans to consume resources and goods is all that matters at the end of the day. It's correct to say that this is a monstrous system, and it's also an unnecessary one. I indict capitalism in this entirely, and any solution to our moment of crisis, the threat of climate change and of ecological collapse, is going to be a difficult one to face indeed. It's going to take a serious reckoning on how we view consumption and infrastructure, and it's also one that's going to take serious international cooperation and reconciliation along the likes of which we've never seen before. But my appeal is to humanity itself. If human society ends, life will still persist on this planet in some way. Even if some dramatic nuclear apocalypse triggers our end, I have no doubt the irradiated roaches will rule this planet and the dance of life will continue, even if we won't recognize it. But all of us must fight if we want to continue to live, and this means a radical reconception of our assumptions and frameworks. To recognize ourselves as part of this planet and our mutual responsibilities to one another. I'm still not perfect and I don't have all the answers. I encourage anyone interested in further reading to pick up Chris Williams' Ecology and Socialism. But I wanted to share my story on this because I think it's possible to reframe assumptions at any moment, at any point. And if all of us are capable of that much, then it's likely we can move mountains together. Thanks again for tuning in, dear listener. Feel free to follow us on our social media for updates and to email or DM us. This is Adi, signing off. Thank you.